0: and I'm going to look, we're going to base our studies on the time in the Old Testament when a great calamity had befallen the Jews. All hope seemed to have gone, but God did not leave them in their despair. He gently drew them back, blessing them once again in their lives. So we're going to look at how God brought them back from the pit of despair to glorious blessing so tonight we're going to look at the slippery slope and how they got into that situation but god never gave up on them then tomorrow we're going to look at three steps forward two steps back facing discouragement and depression then wednesday night is take a look at yourself and this is where i got considering your ways from so we're going to have a look at ourselves honestly. And then the best is yet to come on on Thursday. So let's just set the scene as to the situation that that God's people found themselves in. They were rapidly sliding towards a period of exile. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army swept into Judah and they overran the nation And the consequences of this invasion were that Jerusalem and its temple lay in ruins and the Jews were deported into captivity for 70 years. So the people were taken away in successive waves of deportation and very little of the homeland they once knew was left. Jerusalem was thoroughly destroyed. The walls were broken down and there was nothing left. The temple was burnt The treasures of gold and brass were plundered and taken away and it just left a smoking ruin where god's temple solomon's temple had once been so we need to ask ourselves how could that have happened to the land the city the temple and the people that god loved so much And we're going to look at the book you can see it all in the books of kings and chronicles that recounts what happened But i've asked my uh, emma my daughter if she will do our reading from 2 chronicles 36 verses 11 to 23. are you there em yeah i'm here good thank you
1: zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah, the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear an oath by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem and the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings, sent warnings to them by his messengers rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand and all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his leaders All these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Thank you, Em. So we go from total
0: devastation and despair to the Lord bringing the people back. But to understand how this calamity arose, we just need to see what has happened in the centuries leading up to this time. So in the time of David and Solomon, um, there'd been a united kingdom of Israel. But then when Solomon died, it was divided into two kingdoms, the northern one and the southern one. 200 years later, the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by Assyria and the people who lived there were taken away. But 100 years after that, a new all-conquering nation appeared on the scene, Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, invaded Judah. And it was then that the exile began. And the first wave of 10,000 Jews were deported to Babylon. So Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians and the entire population were taken into exile. The entire population. That's just devastating. The temple and the royal palace were burnt and the walls were demolished. So that's just a very rapid, quick historical overview of the situation. But what was happening in the hearts and minds of the people during that time? That's what we really need to know. Were they still walking with the Lord as they had done in the reigns of David and Solomon? Well, you know, we read in Kings and Chronicles of the ups and downs of their journey down the slippery slope away from the Lord. We had 20 kings during that time. 11 evil and nine good. And slowly the people were drifting further and further away from the Lord. In fact, 35 times we're told that the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. But in spite of all that was happening, God did not give up on his people. He did not completely forsake his people. He could see what was happening. And he sent his prophets to speak for him. He sent his prophets to tell the people the situation they were getting into. He sent his prophets to call them back to him. He sent his prophets to offer them forgiveness and mercy. And to warn them what would happen if they didn't listen to God. He wanted to warn them that a judgment was coming for their unfaithfulness unless they turned back to God. So by sending these prophets, God was giving plenty of opportunities to hear his word and for them to turn back in repentance. But they didn't want to believe that their God would allow judgment to fall upon them. And, you know, isn't that something we hear today? That God is a loving God. People say, we're told God is a God of love. Surely, surely he won't turn us away if he's a God of love. But, you know, that's a basic misunderstanding of the character of God. Yes, He's loving. Yes, he loves the whole world. But he's also holy and righteous. And he can't condone the people's sin but he offers them grace, he offers them mercy, he offers them forgiveness if they turn back to him. And this wasn't only all those thousands of years ago, God is still offering that now today for people who will turn to him. But you know, in spite of all those warnings, the people still would not listen. They didn't believe that God would let this happen to them. And they weren't open to hearing what God was saying to them. But the problem was not to be laid at God's feet. He would offered mercy and forgiveness to all who would turn back to him. The problem lay with the people. The people would not listen. The people would not turn back to God. The people would not admit that they were in the wrong, and therefore they wouldn't turn back. The people wouldn't do things God's way, and they refused to believe that God was let all this happen to them. And because of this, they were heading blindly and stubbornly into a 70-year exile. And I cannot but feel that it's the same today people are drifting further and further away from god they're refusing to listen when he calls to them they miss the offer of mercy and grace and forgiveness but god's problem is not sin god has dealt with sin in the death of jesus god's problem is that the people won't listen they harden their hearts and they refuse to turn back to him And you know, it's not Joe, those who don't know Jesus, who won't listen when God is telling them to turn back to him. How easily those of us who are Christians turn to doing our own things. We turn to doing things our way. We slip into the ways of sin again. And God starts to call us back. But turning back to Jesus in repentance, is not always easy. It might be painful and humiliating for a short time. And in my experience, it often is painful and humiliating for a short time. But you know, it's worth it. It's worth it to find that joy and that peace and that freedom again. So God does not forsake his people And we read in Jeremiah 29, we read this. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster. Plans to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I send you, and I will bring you home again to your own land. So God has not forsaken his people. He says, yes, you'll pay the consequences for turning away from God. But then they will call on him. Then they will call on him. And they will seek him with all their heart. And he will bring them back to himself. He will bring them back from the captivity to the promised land. And he does the same for us. If we turn back to him, he brings us back from the captivity of whatever sin it was that had a hold of us to the promised land. God is just waiting for us to turn back to him when we've drifted away. Now, my husband's testimony was along these lines, and it was that for years his Christian life was crippled by fear. And, you know, the Lord tried in many ways to speak to him, but he wouldn't listen. He was a, it affected his whole life. It was as if he was a captive to it, and he just couldn't break the chains. So the Lord spoke to him one day when we were at Pantador. He spoke to him about his fear. And he spoke to him in Psalm verse, Psalm 34, verse 3, where it said, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. And Rich thought, I'm going to give the Lord a chance here. And from that moment, he agreed to do anything that the Lord wanted him to do. And do you know what? It set him free. It took his fear away completely. So turning back to the Lord and admitting his fear, had brought about a change in Ritchie that he thought was impossible. And God is the God of the impossible when we turn back to him. He thought he was stuck with that Uh fear forever. But nothing, nothing is impossible for God. So Jeremiah declared this message to God's people in the Old Testament. We've just read it. He says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from activity. We turn back in true repentance. The Lord will take, will turn us back and he'll bring us back from captivity. And it's still true today. Nothing, nothing is impossible for God. Failure is not final with jesus any sin has been dealt with on the cross all sin has been dealt with on the cross and we're missing out on god's mercy and forgiveness if we refuse to turn back to him so god's people had been living in exile for many years and god told them to settle down to marry to bring up their families so that their numbers didn't dwell or dwindle away and they just became accustomed to this life for 70 years they lived it many of them knew no other way of living but you know their spiritual life had changed too the temple and the sacrifice were no longer central to their lives god was no longer central to their life in that way in the way that he was before because there was no temple the offering of sacrifices. And I remember seeing a programme once when um, a TV presenter went round a church, Uh, it was one of these really big churches in the States, and she looked around and she said to the preacher, the, um, the one who was in charge of that church, she said, I can't see any crosses. Where is the cross? And, you know, Are we in danger of finding ourselves in a similar situation? If the cross is slipping out of our churches, then the sacrifice of Jesus has lost its significance and people are missing out on his life-changing power because without the cross, the guilt of sin weighs heavily on us. Without the cross, there is no true forgiveness to be found. Our sins leave a stain on our conscience. Without the cross, we have no new life. And we have no power to live the life that the Lord calls us to. We need to rediscover in our lives and churches the joy of life with Jesus. And I can remember when that happened to me. I'd been a Christian four years And I got used to the Christian life. You know, we went to church, we went to the prayer meetings, we did our best for the Lord, we worked hard for the Lord in Sunday school and various things. And I got quite comfortable in that. And then I went to a conference and I heard messages about sin. But I didn't just hear about sin, I heard that it could be dealt with on the cross. And the Lord showed me that I had sin in my life. He showed me how my sin could be dealt with. He made it personal to me. And it was through that that I discovered the source of true joy of life with Jesus. The source of the true joy of life is the cross. Nowhere else. It's coming to the Lord at the cross. But you know, these Jews at that time were still in exile and then all of a sudden, the unbelievable happened and God moved in an unexpected way. The 70 years of exile was drawing to a close and there was a change in the world order. God was on the move. A new all-conquering nation appeared on the scene, Persia. The Assyrians were defeated And the Persians took over the world, the the eastern world. And the Persian king Cyrus came to the throne. And that's when the unbelievable happened. God spoke to Cyrus. God can work miracles. Who would have thought (coughs) he would speak to the king of the new all-conquering nation? And Cyrus decreed. That the Jewish nation could return to their homeland and they could also rebuild their temple. He even gave them funds and resources to do it. And The offer to return was open to the whole nation, but how many of them returned? How many of them were settled in this land where they were comfortable? Life was easy, And they saw no need to return to their promised land. And out of all the exiles who left, about 50,000, known as the remnant, chose to return. And, you know, we too can get settled in a comfortable land. We too can get settled in a land where life seems easy. And not want to hear when the Lord says, turn back to me. Like the Jews, we prefer the life we know. After all, turning back to the Lord can be a humiliating and uncomfortable business. And we'd rather avoid it if we can. But, you know, a small remnant returned. And after everything that happened, they were keen to do things God's way. In Ezra, it tells us this, it says in early autumn, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose. Then Joshua, Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, joined his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, with his family in rebuilding the altar of the God, the God of Israel. They wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings on it as instructed In the law of Moses and even though the people were afraid of the local residents they rebuilt the altar at its old site and then they began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar to the lord each morning and evening so the first thing they wanted to do was build the altar so that they could offer sacrifices on it specifically burnt offerings and the reason for that was because the burnt offering was an atonement for sin it was the basis of God's redemption plan for mankind it was a voluntary perfect offering it was an expression of devotion to God it was an entire sacrifice burnt on the altar it was all for God none of it was for the priests It was a sweet savour to the Lord, and the Lord accepted the sacrifice of the burnt offering as atonement for sin. At last, the altar was back in its rightful place, at the centre of their worship, and they'd begun their new work with the Lord. But what is the significance of this in our lives? Well, Jesus is our burnt offering. He is our atonement for sin. And he needs to be at the center of our lives. It was when Jesus died on the cross, he laid down his life. It was a voluntary action. He was sinless. It was a perfect offering. And he died on that cross. And he bore our sin, not his sin, our sin. It was an offering, an atonement for sin. And, as in the Old Testament, it was a sweet savour to the Lord. The Lord accepted the sacrifice of Jesus as atonement for the sin of the world. And we need to put that sacrifice for us back in its rightful place as the only way to have our sin forgiven, to be reconciled to God, and to be cleansed from sin. It's God's way or no way at all. And it's vital that the cross should be back at the center of our personal and church worship. Because you know, without that, we too are on the slippery slope of drifting away from God. You know, a few years back now, Rich and I decided we were going to have a butcher's trolley in our kitchen. So we went and bought this flat pack that needed assembling. And we'd put several of these things together before. So we assumed that we knew how to do it. So we gave a cursory glance to the instructions and then we started. And we started with a very great enthusiasm and at first all went well. But then little things started to go wrong. Bits didn't fit together. And because things started to go wrong, then, and only then, did we turn back to the instructions. Now, we had a task to do, and we'd done similar things before, and we assumed we knew what to do. But we didn't, did we? We just made an assumption. And it was as, you know, as things began to get out of kilter, we carried on regardless. It would be okay. It would be okay. But it got worse and worse, and we had to sink our DIY pride and go back to the instructions. So, you know, we needed to know what had gone wrong. We'd done this before, we'd made these assumptions, but we found a particular piece we weren't expecting. And getting that wrong meant getting the whole thing wrong. And the Jews knew that the most important thing was to put the altar in its rightful place. If they didn't get the altar there, then everything would go wrong. And what about us? Well, we make assumptions, don't we, about what God wants. We try to do things our way. But you know what? Unless Jesus and the cross is at the center of our personal and our church life, nothing will go right. It might appear to go right to start with, but then it'll get a bit off kilter and it'll all start going wrong. So the cross is not just there for when we become Christians. It's there for us to turn to as we walk with the Lord. For those many times when we go our own way, when we fall into sin, when we come back in repentance to the cross It keeps us clean as we walk with Jesus. And when we're clean, we can be filled by the Spirit. So the burnt offering was offered to God twice daily. But Jesus' death on the cross was a sacrifice made once for all and for all time. And it's there for us to turn back to any time of the day or night. But until we have the cross back in the centre of Christianity and of our churches and our lives, things will be going wrong. So I ask you to consider your ways. Are you still walking with Jesus or have you drifted away from him? Do you listen for the voice of the Lord calling back to him? do you respond to or ignore his voice what ways does the lord have to call us back to him what part does the cross play in your personal walk with jesus in the life of your church is it the basis for all our living or have we relegated it to the sidelines of our lives and what about that if we bring it back into the center We will find the cross to be the source of true joy and freedom in our lives and our walk with Jesus. So consider your ways. That's the first session of consider your ways. So I'm now going to hand over to to Dave, who I think is going to share some sort of testimony.
2: On your, on your picture, it might get bigger then. Where which picture? Oh, there, that's it. Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, it's good to be with you folks and uh to be part of a, an international meeting too. That's a real pleasure. But my my role is to, as it were, give one example each night of what we've been learning from Sheila. So I've had the pleasure of a a peep at her notes beforehand, so I would know which way to go. I'm not going to give testimonies about myself every week, every night, but I think for tonight, perhaps you need to get to know how I fit into what she has been telling us. I'm quite old these days. I was born the year before the Second World War. That's 83 years ago. Um, I grew up in post-war Britain, when we were still a, a shattered nation, trying to put ourselves right again. But I had one advantage. I had a Christian upbringing. My mum and my dad were both Christians, and from almost from birth I was taken to church in a pram at first and then walking uh And I used to accompany my parents, I'd go to the Sunday school. And as I grew older, I'd go to the Bible class. And so I was very much a a little Christian boy, except for one problem. From the age of 12 onwards, I was searching for God, but I didn't believe that there was a God to find. By the time I'd gone to secondary school, we were learning about space, about the stars and what they are and why they're there. We were learning about the insides of of animals as we did biology and looked at that. We, We studied all sorts of things, but the problem for me was that it didn't help my search for God. And I used to say to myself, all this, business about space and stars. There isn't a God, is there? But there was always a question mark, is there? I I found it difficult to speak to anyone about it because they all thought I was a nice Christian boy. One or two of the teachers said things that made me think, like the teacher who took a coin out of his pocket And showed us the coin. And he said, what are those numbers? And we said, it's the date. He said, yes, but what do they tell you? And I said, well, it's the years since Jesus was alive. Isn't it? And he said, yes, that's right. And still I said, but there isn't a God, is there? And always there was this question mark, is there? And then one Sunday night a preacher came. And he saw that there were about a dozen young teenagers in the congregation and so he got rid of his sermon went through the service and when it got to the time to preach he gave his testimony he was a 65 year old man at the time he became a christian when he was 16 and he went through his life showing how god had appeared to him how jesus had saved him when he got to the end of his sermon he announced the last hymn, and it was the hymn that we used to sing at the Billy Graham Crusades, Just As I Am, and the chorus is, Just As I Am, I Come, and from what he'd said in his testimony and from what we were singing, I came, and God was real. And that's when I began to search my heart because I realised that If God was real, if Jesus died for me, then he had to be in charge of my life. So I committed my way to the Lord. I said, Lord, I've got to leave school at the end of this year. I'm 16 years old and, you know, I've got to face the future. But what do you want me to do? I mean, I'll do anything, Lord. I'll go anywhere. I'll be anything. If you would just tell me what to do. Amen. Got into bed, went to bed, went to sleep. That week, I received a call. One of the schoolmasters said there was a, an old boy of the school who was looking for a, a junior to study as an engineer. And something in my heart said, Yes, that's it. That's it. The following Sunday, a deacon in the church gave me a magazine. It was the Billy Graham Crusade magazine. I opened it and in the middle pages, it said, there is a desperate need for ministers to preach the gospel. And I thought, that's it. That's what I must do. But when I prayed about it, this God that I had not believed in was so real to me that I realized that, yes, be an engineer. Yes, be a Christian. Be a preacher, I will guide you. And kneeling by my bed, I gave my heart to the Lord. I said, Lord, I am yours, whatever you ask. Well, a little while after this, I met my, my girlfriend Alfie, who was sitting behind me here, and we began going to the Christian fellowships. We met other Christians and they were all alive and we were all happy, clappy Christians. We sang choruses, we listened to good teaching, but there was an emphasis in those days on holiness and a second blessing, they called it, so that you've been saved, but now you've got to be a second blessing to be filled with the spirit. And this confused us. Then we met Roy Hessian, and uh, he invited us to the conferences. We went to the conferences, and we were uncovered. We realized that we were the sinners for whom Jesus died. We realized that his blood would cleanse all sin. We realized that he wanted to be Lord of our lives in every respect. And we listened to the messages from All those who had been blessed by the revival in East Africa, we listened to the explanations of the blood and the cross and the Holy Spirit. And and we realized that we needed to have a good, strong relationship with Jesus. In those early conferences, we heard things we'd never heard in church before. We heard about grace. We heard about the infinite love of God for sinners. When we heard that, we began to relax because we knew we were sinners. But we didn't know what to do about it. And we were taught that the grace of God has given us a savior. His name is Jesus. He shed his blood for us. And all our striving for holiness, trying to be good, just didn't mean anything anymore because Jesus was our goodness. We went to him. And when we got to that point on one particular year when we were in North Wales, on the Thursday night, we said to each other, of course, of course, it's in the Bible. And we realized that The teaching we'd received had borne fruit in our hearts and we just gave ourselves to the Lord and began to walk the way of grace, the Calvary road that we'd heard about so much. That weekend, we came home from the conference and after church on the Sunday evening, we had a young people's group and we met in someone's home. And as we walked in, the person in charge took one look at us and they said, what's happened to you? You're shining. Well, we knew what had happened to us. And we quickly told them we met with Jesus in a new and a living way. We've learned about the cross. We've learned about his precious blood. We've learned about his grace. And they would sat there open-eyed and open-mouthed as well, listening to something they'd never heard. It was something we'd never heard as well. So that was our journey a journey in my case from despair because i couldn't believe in god to the fellowship of grace and far from being the end of a journey to becoming a daily walk with jesus as we learned what to do with sin to repent to be cleansed in his precious blood and so there we were two repenting sinners and here we are today In our 80s, getting older, and Jesus is still keeping us going. He still cleanses us. When we're tempted, we cry out to him. When we fail, we cry out to him. And he hears, and he responds in grace. He cleanses us in his precious blood, and he gives us a new beginning. And every day with him is a new beginning. So... Bless you as you've listened tonight. It's been lovely to hear that exposition so well put over. I can't wait till till tomorrow for the next installment, and I'm sure you can't either. So thank you for listening and bless you all.